0: Welcome back rich girls, new and old to the Money with Katie podcast. I've got a good one for you today where I attempt to answer a scary question.
1: Today's report laid bare that climate change is happening now on an unprecedented scale. Law enforcement has now undertaken to uh, arrest truckers who continue to protest the vaccine man. Kanye West is reportedly telling people that he and Kim Kardashian are back together. together.
0: Okay, those are very scary questions, but not the one that I'm exploring today. The question that we're diving into today, is the millennial obsession with financial independence a sign of a problem? If you are someone who's pursuing financial independence, let me ask you a question, why? I know, I know, stick it to the man, tap dance on your boss's desk, (laughs) drink Merlot at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, but really, why? Recently, I was struck by an interesting shower thought. What does it say about the state of work in the US that there is a small legion of millennials and elder millennials that regularly fantasize about retiring before they're 40? Why do we wanna get out of the workforce so badly? I wanted to talk to someone who has a PhD in why millennials don't want to work anymore. My
1: name is Anna Hewlett, and I am an industrial organizational psychologist, which is a big mouthful. So we usually just say IO, psychologist. And what that means is that my expertise is the psychology of the workplace. And that can be anything from how to best conceptualize and measure and track performance, it could be your job satisfaction. It could be diversity and inclusion. One thing to think about is the evolving context of work over the past century. So a hundred years ago, work was really focused on production and efficiency. Humans were considered truly, you know, like a cog in a machine, and we didn't really think about the impact of work on those humans, right? And so, as technology has evolved over the past century, that has really allowed humans to step into a different kind of workplace experience and workplace roles. One kind of concept of this is the concept of knowledge work. So now, instead of my work being physical in a factory or production line, I'm thinking for a living and All of my work can be conducted, you know, in in one place, wherever my brain is, right? With that comes the opportunity for us to understand more about the impact of work on humans and what work means to us in our lives. So where millennials come in over the past, you know, let's say 20, 30 years, we uh, have started to conceptualize work as part of our identity. And and that has been around before millennials, but even more so. Now we are expecting things like uh, work-life balance or uh, feelings of autonomy and inclusion. So for millennials, I think that we are obsessed with the idea of financial independence because uh, work is not the end-all be-all for us, even though I just said it's part of our identity it's that push and pull, right? There's the uh, idea that our career is who we are and we've been working our our whole lives toward, but also at the same time, we want more in our lives than just the career. So that's where the FI comes in and uh, we want to reach that sooner, uh, many of us do, so that we can enjoy the fruits of our labor and uh, all that our careers have allowed us to be able to do.
0: Okay, so according to science, millennials just want more out of work, and when they're not getting it, it's easy to fantasize about piecing out entirely and having the financial means to do something you love without worrying about the money. But have we ever stopped to examine how bizarre it is that in the United States the ability to do so depends wholly on whether or not you can amass a ridiculous sum of wealth? Before we go any further, know that this is not intended to be an episode that bashes the U.S. I love America. I feel very fortunate to live in this country, but I still think it's worthwhile to think critically about why the concept of FI is so prevalent here. Now, you know, jump cut to me slowly unbuttoning my shirt to reveal a Money with Katie for Bernie t-shirt underneath Okay, just kidding. This is not my socialist manifesto, but it is a scrutiny of this game that we are all playing because yes, while you can artfully opt out of corporate America by becoming a millionaire in the first few decades of your life, it makes me wonder, has anyone stopped to ask whether or not that's a little bit fucked up? I immediately thought of countries like Sweden, Denmark, and Norway where there are social safety nets in place and a more balanced attitude toward work. And while this New York Times article that I'll link in the show notes is from 2014, it highlights the general thesis I am proposing that we explore today. This is a quote. It's a simple idea supported by both economic theory and most people's intuition. If welfare benefits are generous and taxes are high, fewer people will work. Why bother being industrious after all if you can get a check from the government for just sitting around? And if your choice to work means that much of your income will end up in the tax collector's coffers? Here's the rub, though. That idea might be backward. Some of the highest employment rates in the advanced world are in places with the highest taxes and the most generous welfare systems, namely Scandinavian countries. The United States and many other nations with relatively low taxes and a smaller social safety net actually have substantially lower rates of employment, end quote. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't we see a dip in employment during the pandemic when more unemployment checks were being sent Sure, but there was an extenuating circumstance at play too, a pandemic. Here's another quote. Working in America is in decline. The share of prime age men, those 25 to 54 years old, who aren't working has more than tripled since the late 1960s to 16%. More recently, since the turn of the century, the share of women without paying jobs has been rising too. The U.S., which had one of the highest employment rates among developed nations as recently as 2,000, has fallen toward the bottom of the list, end quote. Some of these articles imply, either explicitly or implicitly, that Americans simply aren't as interested in work, that receiving disability or unemployment benefits has made us lazy or incompetent, but I think they might have it completely backwards, I don't think Americans are abandoning work in droves because they have a better offer from the government. I think they're abandoning work because work is getting increasingly demoralizing. I asked Anna about this with respect to millennial knowledge work in particular. This reminds me of an
1: anecdote, and it's an anecdote, so take it for what it's worth, but recently my dad, um, who is not a millennial, asked me for help reviewing a recommendation letter he was writing for someone, and I took a look, made some track changes, sent it back to him, and uh, he had no idea how to see the track changes. He didn't know how to do this, and he's a, a senior leader and has been working for 40 years, and I talked him through it and he said, "Yeah, I just I haven't used Word or PowerPoint in, you know, 15 20 years because I had a secretary that did all of this." And my mind was blown. I was like, "Wait, you don't know how to do this because you had it outsourced?" And of course, not all jobs, you know, have that, but I think that was a big aha moment for me, with um the kind of intergenerational tension that you're talking about uh, and the perception that millennials are lazy. And it's like, wow, there are parts of Boomer's jobs that were outsourced for decades that is standard practice for a millennial. And all of our work is not only the work, but the, you know, the formatting, the editing, the beautifying in terms of like a PowerPoint deck. And as a small example, but it kind of made me feel a little better about my position as one of those millennials that gets that trope of
0: millennials are lazy. But that's not really what this episode is about. This episode is about the way an obsession with financial independence might signal a larger problem. And there are two major roadblocks that often come up for people pursuing FI. Healthcare, childcare, how do these things impact financial independence? These are the two topics of pushback I encounter when preaching the gospel of Phi: that the cost of healthcare and childcare in the U.S. is astronomical. According to CNBC, the average family in the U.S. spends more than $8,000 per year on childcare and... Knowing young parents personally, this number feels really, really low. Anecdotally, I talked to two different people last week who spent more than $3,000 per month on childcare. For those doing the math, that's $36,000 per year. But even then, let's take the average $8,355 per year and assume that that is the cost of childcare, especially after one reaches financial independence and likely wouldn't require as much help because they presumably won't be working. The cost of childcare adds another $208,875 to one's FI number. That is the amount you need to spin off at least $8,355 of returns each year if you assume a 4% safe withdrawal rate. And what about health insurance? This is practically a meme topic in the freelance world that without a big corporation sponsoring your well-being, it can be really expensive to maintain basic shitty healthcare. Fidelity estimates that your average retiree, 65 years old, will need about $300,000 to cover their healthcare costs in retirement. And that's someone who's retiring at 65 and taking advantage of Medicare. Those of us who plan to leave the traditional workforce sooner, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we may end up needing multiples of $300,000 added to our fine number to make sure that we're set. Again, this is not supposed to be a criticism of the U.S. I love the U.S., but what does it say about our system that someone who doesn't retire with an extra quarter million dollars or more may be shit out of luck in their most vulnerable years? Elder care is a profitable biz, honey, and it is pay to play. So, is this a uniquely American problem? Anna actually had some interesting research from our friends in the Nordic countries. Recently,
1: this summer, Iceland put out a study about reduced hours in the work week and how that impacted productivity and well being. And so, folks in this study dropped from an average of 40 hours of work a week to 35, 36 they found that productivity remained stable or increased for the majority of people. So less time at work, more productivity and well-being increased, stress and burnout decreased and work-life balance increased. And so we have a plethora of research uh, that shows that having time away from work is really crucial for satisfaction and success at work. There's a idea that comes from that industrial kind of beginning of work that more hours equals more productivity, and I think that lingers in um, our older generations perhaps, but what the science is telling us is that there's a certain point when more hours does not mean more productivity. It means decreased productivity.
0: To be very clear, I am not suggesting that government spending should increase or that we should all feel the burn just yet, but I am suggesting that these hurdles are not ubiquitous worldwide. Dane's effective tax rate is 86% compared to 37% in the U.S., but that money is used to provide social programs that make these questions kind of obsolete. This is another quote from the same article I was quoting earlier. In short, more people may work when countries offer public services that directly make working easier, such as subsidized care for children and the old, generous sick leave policies, and cheap, accessible transportation. If the goal is to get more people working, what's important about a social welfare plan may be more about what the money is spent on than how much is spent, end quote. I don't feel great about the idea of losing 86% of my income to the government, candidly, but it is interesting to look at other developed countries that do things differently and just mull it over that maybe there are other ways to do things. Sweden is an interesting example, and by the way, all the data that I'm about to tell you came from OECD health data between 1990 and 2006. Are you ready for some fast facts? The average monthly disposable income after taxes in Sweden is $3,181. In America, it's $3,258. So it's actually only about 2% higher in America, despite the much lower taxes. Sweden's economy produces an annual GDP of $525 billion, while the U.S. produces an annual GDP of $9.78 trillion, with a T, And it's easy to look at that and decide that the U.S. is simply just more productive, that we got a greater heart for the hustle. But interestingly, Sweden's GDP per capita, so think about this like productivity per person, is 55,244, while the U.S.'s is only 49,965. One could interpret this to mean that Swedes are 11% more productive on a per-person basis than Americans. That is especially interesting to me considering their effective tax rate is between 70 and 80%. There are 35 times as many people living in the U.S. as in Sweden, which is why our GDP is still so much higher. But this idea that low taxes and insufficient social safety nets incentivize workers to be more productive and earn more money may be called into question by some of these figures. While I'm obviously just using one example that came to mind and I'm not an economist or a historian, it did surprise me. So let's talk about economics and happiness. Happiness is hard to measure directly, but I think there are a few proxies that we can use to make inferences about how happy Swedes are compared to the general population of the United States. For example, Americans have an amphetamine use rate that's four times higher than Swedes. The uppers abound. Americans use 13 times as much cannabis, so uh, we like our downers too. We drank 20% more alcohol, and when scored on net happiness, Swedes reported being on average 8% happier and 1% more satisfied with their lives than Americans did. 10% of Americans have reported feelings of depression, while only 4% of Swedes reported the same. And it seems that there are two areas on the lifestyle index where the U.S. did beat Sweden. A 6% higher quality of life index and 33 times as many roller coasters. Yep, roller coasters. So if you want to hit up six flags, you are in the right country. There were other hilarious statistics like the number of subway restaurants per country. The U.S. has 1,947 times as many, which I would consider a bug, not a feature. So what are we to make of this? You know, we can cherry-pick statistics all day long, and there are certainly areas where the U.S. ranks as the greatest country in the world. We have gotten a lot of things right. But what I'm proposing is this. Financial independence might not be about money or freedom at all. It might be about safety. How does one take out an insurance policy for their lifestyle in a country with relatively fewer social safety nets? They reach financial independence. Financial independence is, in a lot of ways, a search for safety and protection against the many things that can go wrong in life. Money becomes the barrier by which we insulate ourselves from problems that we may not even need to experience. I would argue that Scandinavian countries are an excellent case study of what happens when you bake some of these socioeconomic protections into the fabric of society instead of requiring each individual to compete and build a nest egg sufficient for supporting them. It's this concept of Once I'm rich enough to where it doesn't matter what goes wrong, then I'll be able to truly relax and do the things I want to do without fear of blowing up my entire life. It can become dystopian rather quickly. It's like, I want to live my dreams, but health insurance. I will leave you with this parting story. When I was in Amsterdam in 2019 for work, I met a woman who worked at Booking.com. She was from Denmark, and we were talking on a canal ride over Rosé, which I guess is a casual after-work activity in the Netherlands, and I expressed to her how much I desperately wanted to be an entrepreneur and strike out on my own, and she seemed confused. Well, what's the problem, she asked. Well, I hesitated. I would just be giving up so many benefits, like health insurance is so expensive, you know? No, she didn't know. She didn't know because health insurance in the Netherlands isn't tied to your employability or choice of corporate overlord. She explained how she had been freelance for years and how countries like the Netherlands are very freelancer-friendly because of their social systems. I felt like someone had just removed my star-spangled blinders. Oh, shit, I thought, do I live in one of the only places where my health insurance is tied to my corporate daddy? You mean this doesn't have to be this way? I didn't buy a flat in Amsterdam, but it did make me wonder. Growing up in a capitalist economic system, I believed that free markets and private ownership incentivized innovation, that it created opportunities for wealth, abundance, and freedom, that it incentivized following your dreams and working really hard at them, because if you didn't, well, you would end up on the streets. And on some level, I still believe that that's true. But this particular conversation made me wonder if maybe that's a little backwards, too. After all, I had expressed the desire to follow my dreams and work hard doing something different, but the fear of falling off a cliff financially, namely no health insurance, prevented me from taking a chance and encouraged me to keep playing it safe. I had a lot to lose because so much of my security and well-being was tied up with my employer. To follow the script, I wanted to be protected by corporate daddy and his group insurance policy. I am probably conflating different social, economic, and political trains of thought here, so forgive me, though the pursue profit at any price mentality of American corporations has had massive consequences for public health, both physical and mental. Look no further than Big Sugar or Big Tobacco or even Big Chem for proof. But hilariously, pursuing financial independence is the most American response to this problem. In other words, take it upon yourself to bootstrap your way to safety, make it your individual responsibility, your goal, and get after it.
1: For me personally, with my own financial goals, it's like, okay, even if I retire at 35, like will I be bored? Will I be fulfilled? I love the work I do, and not everyone has that that luxury to love their work, but I do think that's what millennials want. That's the end goal. And so if folks are able to better engage at work and have a better balance, if it's a four-day work week, let's say, maybe folks would choose to voluntarily work longer, or maybe there would be more options of semi-retirement, or maybe you retire and start your own business within the field that you are passionate about. I think absolutely there would be more people working longer, but also maybe working in different ways.
0: Anna did mention one note that I felt super encouraged by though.
1: Your financial status as a retiree is positively related to how you adjust to that uh, experience.
0: So yeah, Being involved in your own financial planning apparently correlates positively to actually liking retirement. That is one way to play the game. It's how I'm playing it. And for those of us who aren't interested, there's always Sweden. All right, that is all for today, rich girls. I will see you next Wednesday, same time, same place, on the Money with Katie podcast.